The singing has indeed been absolutely beautiful. Thank you for the manner in which you have led us and the manner in which you have participated. I want to say to Doug and to the elders of this congregation again, thank you. I have been blessed already, and I've only been here a little while. I know, and I look forward to heaven, because heaven is going to be like what I've experienced with you all today. It's a grand place to be. And I've come here this week to encourage you and your endeavor to make heaven your home. And I hope that each presentation will be just that, an encouragement to you, because I have been encouraged by the invitation and by my presence here thus far. Fortifying the family is the theme. And this morning we talked about reasons that we need to fortify the family by looking at some changes that have occurred in this wonderful institution. And what I want to do in the afternoon hour is to talk about marriage. And we're going to look at some ingredients that are necessary to fortify our marriages. And then, hopefully, it will help you to have the marriage that God would want all people who enter into marriage to have, a marriage full of joy and happiness. This morning, we're going to deal with, in this lesson, now that we understand the reason the family needs to be fortified, I want to share with you how we can fortify the family. And I want to address particularly one of the reasons that was given in the previous presentation. And that is, in order to fortify the family, we need parents that would transform their house into a home. And what I want to do in helping you to transform your house into a home is share with you some ingredients that I believe are essential to be in a place of residence. And when these ingredients are there, it'll make that place not a house. It'll make it a home. I'm so thankful. I was born in Houston, Mississippi. When I was five years old, we moved to Tupelo. My parents gave us a home. It wasn't much. There were times, especially in the summertime, we could see the chickens through the floor up under the house. For a long time, we had to little outhouse in the back. Some of you have probably never seen that, but I remember being terrified at night. No, not going there. The fear of falling in, the greatest fear of my life. It was not much, but I tell you, it was a home. And there are times I reminisce and I reflect back on those years there. And I'm thankful for all the things my parents have given me. But most of all, I'm thankful that they gave me a home. And what I've tried to do with my children, what Rodney and I try to do is give them a home, not a house. America is a place full of houses. But if we're going to make America strong again, if we're going to have strong communities and strong churches, what America needs this morning, what America needs this morning, less houses and more homes. 
And so I'm going to share with you five ingredients. I prepared to share with you seven, but I'm going to share with you five. And hopefully we'll get through before one o'clock. But five ingredients that would, if they're present, would take that house. And when the children leave home, not because of necessity of financial stress, they, they can't wait to get back home, but because they just want to come back home because there was a place they have fun memories. Similar to why I want to go back to Freed Hartman when I graduated, because I had fun memories there. But in order to, to lay the foundation for this lesson, if you have your copy of God's Word, turn to the book of Jeremiah. I want to use this text as a springboard before I unveil the five ingredients. When I read the book of Jeremiah, it reminds me so much of me. Jeremiah was a young man when God summons him to go and preach to God's people. But before he was afforded the privilege to go and preach to God's people, Jeremiah took a survey of the condition of God's people. And what this young boy saw, what this young boy observed among God's people is the reason why he's called the weeping prophet. In the 70s, growing up in Tupelo, Mississippi, and that's when marijuana was beginning to become the drug of choice among young people. And I was beginning to see a decline in religiosity in America and and the disrespect for, for authority. God, what can I do to make a difference? So that's when I decided I wanted to be a preacher because of the condition that I began to see in the black community where I was living and the changes that I was beginning to see and, and I wanted to make a difference. I'm challenging you here today, if there's a father in the audience, rise up to make a difference. If there's a husband here, stand up and want to make a difference. Want to leave this place a little better than it was when you were here. Jeremiah left with that desire. Jeremiah chapter 2, look at verse 13. When he observed God's people, the first thing he observed was God's people have committed not one, but two evils. The first evil that they had forgotten God. There was a time in America that on any given Sunday that over 62% of Americans attended church. It was important to Americans. But in America today, on any given Sunday, less than 38% of Americans attend church. There was a time in America that over 93% of people leave this Bible to be the inspired word of God. We're down to 72% of Americans who believe that this book is inspired of God. Jeremiah saw a nation that had forgotten God. The second evil, they had put their trust in cisterns, but not just any kind, but broken cisterns. A cistern was a well that would catch rainwater. And in difficult times of the the year, they would go to these man-made wells. But there's just one problem. They had a hole in them. The very thing that they were going to turn to to sustain them in difficult times was going to fail them again in America. There was a time when people said, if I had a better relation with God, a closer walk with God, things would be better in my life. 
But in America, if I had more money, we have become a materialistic society. It's not in God we trust that we stamped on our money, but it's in money that we have put our trust. We believe money can solve all problems. Money can bring happiness. Money can alleviate any trouble in our lives. That's what Jeremiah saw. Now look at Jeremiah 5, verse 30. The King James says, my mother translation, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. I mean, woe. He says, for my people have, they not only have they forgotten God, but my people have turned from God. They have put their trust in something else other than God. And what he's saying, the prophets, they prophesy falsely. Priests, they bear rule by their own means. And guess what? My people love to have it so. The very individuals who've been entrusted to preach God's word, the priests and the prophets, they were corrupt. Instead of preaching God's word to the people if they have been summoned by God, Jeremiah said, the servants of God have become corrupt. Look at any given Sunday on the radio, television, any media, we have evangelists that are supposed to be preaching the word of God, preaching the truth, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. But instead of preaching God's word, we're telling people how to get rich, how to feel good and, and so forth and so on. But we're not preaching the word of God. Sermons of pop psychology to make people feel good. We are to preach the gospel, preach the word. Tell people what they need to hear that will save their souls. Preach the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, because the truth will set them free. But in many pulpits, everything but the truth is being preached. Jeremiah said the priests and the prophets had become corrupt. Jeremiah 6 verse 14. The priest began to say, don't listen to people like Sam Jones. He's paranoid. He just hysteria. He's just trying to get you all worked up over nothing. They have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly saying, peace, peace. Everything's okay. America is a great nation. I don't want to leave the impression that I think America is is a terrible place. There are good things going on in America. There are good things going on in families. But there are too many who have turned, families that have turned from God. And so he says, they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. But look at verse 15. Jeremiah said, Sammy, the people have become so corrupt that when they committed sin, they didn't even blush. Have we become a nation that we don't even blush? There are certain heinous Diabolical sins that are committed, you don't even blush. There are certain programs on TV that I grew up, if I would see those things, I believe it, black people, we blush. People think black people don't blush, we blush. We turn a little darker, but we blush. (laughs) But we have become a nation that doesn't blush. Then verse 16, he plead, God pleaded with Jeremiah to challenge the people to look at the various ways to come back and walk in the old path and the old way. But the people said, we don't want to come back. We don't want 
America come back? Has America become a nation that she doesn't want a relationship with God? That's what troubles my heart. As I look at this wonderful nation that I live in, I don't want America to become a nation that doesn't want to know God. As Jeremiah saw a nation that didn't want to know God. I had a privilege to go to Europe and Dr. Terry Edwards been there for many years and worked there. And one thing you notice right off in Europe is the beautiful cathedrals, beautiful religious buildings that are empty. That are empty. Will the day come that these beautiful church buildings in America, will the day come that they'll be empty because people don't want to know God? The people don't have a passion to serve God. I hope what is going on in Europe doesn't happen here in America. That we lose our passion to want to serve God on a Sunday morning as well as throughout the week. Jeremiah saw a nation that had lost that passion to serve God. I turn to Jeremiah chapter 8. And when I read verse 22... In my mind, when I read verse 22, as I read and study the book of Jeremiah, it's three o'clock in the morning. The man can't sleep. He's been up all night and he's going to have the privilege of speaking to God's people the next day. And, he, and his heart is heavy. I hope your heart is heavy when you think about the family. What can we do to fortify our families, preacher? You know families and I know families that are falling apart, families that are hurting, families that are grieving. What can we do preaching? And some of you can remember when families in America were strong. Some of you can remember the same vision that I have and remembrance that I have of a wonderful nation with strong families. What happened to him? Jeremiah is seeing something that's, that's disturbing him. And he says in Jeremiah chapter 8, God, is there no bomb in Gilead? God, is there no physician? God, is there no medicine? There are times when I think about America that I just, the privacy of my prayer, I just cry, God, is there nothing we can do? When I look at the facts, particularly in the African-American community, when over 72% of our homes are single parents, God, is there nothing we can do? When I think of the continued decline of, 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 of two parents home in America, God, is there nothing we can do? God, what can I do? What can we do to fortify our families? What can we do to make our families strong again? God, is there no medicine? Is there no bomb? Now I turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. And you see why he was called the weeping prophet. Jeremiah 9 verse 1, he says, Sammy, oh, and my hair was fountain. Oh, and my hair was a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah saw God's people leaving God. He was filled with a passion. What can I do? And he didn't feel like there was much he could accomplish. He pleaded with them as a husband pleads with the wife or wife pleads with the husband to change his or her behavior. He pleaded with Israel to come back to God. God did not want to let this country from the north up and kept, put his people into captivity. God loved Israel. God did not want to punish Israel. And Jeremiah pleaded with Israel. Maybe as a parent out there, you know what I'm talking about when you pleaded with your child to 
give up an immoral activity? Have you ever pleaded with a child to stop? Here's God pleading through the mouth of of Jeremiah with Israel. Israel, come back. I love you, Israel. Israel, don't do this to me. I love you, Israel. But Israel didn't love God like God loved Israel. Now turn to Lamentation chapter one. The text that was read is after the destruction. Israel will not repent. And so now we see the nation coming from the north and the city of Jerusalem that had been beautifully inhabited over the years. A beautiful city is now in mass destruction because of sin. And in verse 12, the city cries out as the people are walking through and seeing the the decay and raising the question, Israel, is it nothing to you? That the reason we're in, in Jerusalem is in this predicament is because of you. If you had changed, God would not have allowed the city from the country from the north to come down and destroy this beautiful city. But because you wouldn't turn, is it nothing to you? What a phrase. Is it nothing to you of the condition of American families? Is it nothing to you that there's too many husbands just walking away from their families? Is it nothing to you that there's too many wives that are just walking away? Is it nothing to you that there's too many children that don't care about the pain and the agony that they're sending their parents through? It's all about them. It's all about their happiness. They want to do what they want to do, regardless of the impact it's having on their parents. Is it nothing to you? Do you not care? I know you do. And that's why you're planning this series of lessons to encourage us to spend more time praying about the family. And so the question is, Brother Jones, what can we do? The answer, we can transform our house into a home. That's the answer. That's one answer. It's we need more homes in America. We need to transform our house into a home. So let me share with you. If we're going to make a difference, if we're going to have that passion of Jeremiah, if we're going to see America better and our communities better and the lost church better, we need some homes in America. So what's the first ingredient? Here's number one. We need family members who are willing to make some sacrifices. Some family members who are willing to make some sacrifices. What do you mean? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. When I think about the apostle Paul, I think about this ingredient. Here's a man who understood the importance and significance of making sacrifices. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 through 28, we read of all the, the things that Paul went through, the being stoned, being shipwrecked, but yet he didn't quit. This man went through a variety of things, but this man didn't quit. What made Paul, what empowered Paul to keep going? Paul understood the importance of sacrifices. That's why. What made Paul want to make sacrifice? He says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, he says, the love of Christ, Sammy, the love of Christ constraineth me. 
The love of Christ compelled me, Sammy. There were times when I was going through persecution from without and from within. I wanted to quit, but my love for Christ wouldn't let me quit. What makes a house a home is when you have family members who love one another so much that they're willing to make sacrifices. They're willing to keep going, even though they're going through some difficult times, even though they're going through some trying times. They can't quit. Because they love the family. They love the family. It's all about the family. It's not about self. When Ron and I first got married, some 36 years ago, we dated three years prior to marriage. You say, I got married at age 20. When I was 16, I started looking for a wife. I knew what I wanted and what I was looking for. At 17, I spotted Ron and she had the attributes that I was looking for and what I thought would make a good wife. And so we dated for three years and I just, you know, my thing is I knew what I wanted. When we got married, I was going to make Rhonda just like my mother. Just like my mother. Guys, let me tell you this. Don't do that. But nonetheless, June 18th, it's 1977. I think I got that date right. We walked, she came down that aisle and I was smiling. And then after the honeymoon, I said, it's time to go to work. It's time to make Rhonda just like my mother. And so I remember that when Rhonda made the bed up, she didn't make it up like my mom. And like a good husband, I'm trying to help her. I went back and I pulled the cover off the bed. I said, that bed's not made up right. Make it up again. She looked at me like, this man has lost his mind. What's wrong with him? And I said, you, when you make the bed up, you got to pull the sheet. You got to tuck it and you got to. And she said, honey, why make the bed up? We're going to get back in it. That's not the way I grew up. You made the bed up when you got out of it. And then we came to dishes. Going to bed, there were dishes in the sink. And I'm saying, no, nah, that's not going to do it. Because in our house, the dishes, when you got through eating, you wash your own dish. And she said, honey, why wash the dishes when we still got clean ones? Oh, boy. So you see the odd couple. And so I began to nag. Rhonda, you got to do it because my mom did it this way. You got to do it this way. My mom did it this way. You got to do it this way. I began, I became a nagging husband. Six months into the marriage, a Thursday night, I came home. I've been out teaching a Bible class and I came home and Rhonda was in one of her romantic mood. She prepared the preacher's favorite dish, fried chicken. Anytime a preacher has fried chicken, it's a good day. And so she had candlelight. Golden fried chicken on the table there and all the vegetables that go with it, cornbread. And I bit into that chicken and here come blood running down the side of my mouth. I, and this is a true story. I said, I've got to help run now. She's not like she's not cooking like my mom. So I jumped up from the table and I'm doing this to help Rhonda. Preachers. Young men learn from me. Don't do this. But I jumped up and said, Rhonda, you can't cook. You can't wash. You can't iron. You can't make up a bed. Matter of fact, you can't do anything right. And she was looking at me like this man has lost his mind. If I get that skillet, I think that I hit him one time. That'll bring him back to his senses. But she didn't say anything. She's just looking at me. and I'm saying she's not getting it. And so I've, I've got to be more convincing. I said, if you can't do any better than this, I'm going to leave you. Surely she's going to fall down on her knees and say, Sammy, don't leave me. I need a man to take care of me. She said, bye. (laughs) Oh, boy. 
Psychology is not working. I must have didn't do good in psychology. So it's not working. So, oh, man, what am I do? So I went in the bedroom and I started packing. And guess what she did? She walked right behind me. and She was handing me my clothes. <laughs> True story. And I, it's not working. So I got in the car and I, boom, left. She's at the front door and said, bye-bye. How oh, it's not working. So I went to my favorite eating place, McDonald's. <laughs> Stayed there for four hours. And after four hours, a light came on. And the light said, Sammy, you can cook better than most women. You know how you want the bed made up. You know how you want your socks on, your T-shirt on, your boxer shirt. You know how you want everything on because your mama on your T-shirts and you want your T-shirt on and run the wind on my T-shirts. But nonetheless, I went back home and I apologized. I said, honey, forgive me. She did. And I'm able to tell this story now because I have a loving, forgiving wife. She forgave me for my attitude. But I went back with a plan. And my plan was this, Rhonda, from now on, you don't have to do any washing, any ironing, any cooking. You don't have to do anything. All I want you to do is just watch me. And when you catch on, you can take over. Now, I see you got the point. I'm not a very good teacher. Because it took seven years later, she came to me and she said, Sam, I think I've got it. But for seven years, I did all the washing, the ironing, and cooking. What's my point? I saved my marriage. I had to make some sacrifices. And over the years, Ron and I, we have made sacrifices to keep our marriage together. And that's what you have to do in a marriage is that you, what makes a house a home is where members are willing to make sacrifices. What sacrifices do you need to make to make your marriage better, your family better, your home better? There's a husband in here that needs to change some things about yourself. There's some children in here that need to change some things about yourself to make that home a better place, to make that house a home. Before we go to the second point, let me end with a poem. Maybe you've heard this poem before, but it's entitled The Cold Within. But it summarizes the point that I want to make. Listen to it. The Cold Within. Six humans were trapped by happenstance and bleak and bitter cold. Each one possessed a stick of wood, or so the story is told. Their dying fire was in need of logs, but the first man held his back. For the faces around the fire, he noticed that one was black. The next man, looking across the way, saw one and not of his church. He couldn't bring himself to give the fire his stick a birch. The third one sat in tattered clothes. As he gave his coat a hitch, why should my law be put to use to warm the idle rich? The rich man just sat back and thought of the wealth he had in store and how to keep what he had earned from the lazy, shiftless poor. The black man face bespoke revenge as a fire passed from his sight for all that he saw in his stick of wood was a chance to spite the white. The last man of this forlorn group did not accept for gain. Giving only to those who gave was how he played the game. So with their logs held tight, in death still hand, was proof of human sin. These six men did not die from the cold without, 
They all die from the cold within. You know what's killing marriages? You know what's killing families? Is the cold within. The unwillingness to give up some laws, the unwillingness to make some changes, the unwillingness to make some sacrifice. If these men had been willing to sacrifice their laws, they would have all lived, but they all died because they were not willing to make any sacrifices. Don't let your family die. Look at what sacrifices you need to make to make that house a home. Number two. There's a willingness to take the time to express appreciation for one another. Husbands, when was the last time you told your wives how much you love her and appreciate her? Well, I told her that 17 years ago when we got married. If I ever changed my mind, I'll... No, that won't do it. Maybe that worked for a great-great-grandmother, but today women want to be told how much they're loved and how much they're appreciated. Children, when was the last time you told mom and dad, thank you, mom, thank you, dad, for the things you provide for us? You see, in order to make a house a home, members need to take the time to tell one another how much they love one another, how much they appreciate one another. That's what is needed to make a house a home is the willingness to take the time to express appreciation. One of my favorite movies was a story about a mother and a daughter. And this mother loved this daughter, but this daughter didn't love mom. She was embarrassed of mom. And there were many times that she would tell mom that she didn't even want to be her child. But this mom loved this daughter. She did everything she could for this daughter. But this daughter did not want to be associated with mama. Matter of fact, she broke mama's heart and mama died. And at the funeral at the end of the movie, you see this girl coming through. She broke mama's heart. Mom's dead. And now she's coming through. Let me through. Let me through. That's my mother. But not one time while mom was alive did mama ever hear from that daughter that I love you, mama. I care for you, mama. Not one time. Children, don't let it be that you never tell your parents how much you love them, how much you appreciate them. One day mama's going to be gone. There's somebody in this order that wish mama was still alive and she can go to mama and to dad and say, dad, I appreciate you. But in this movie, Mom died of a broken heart. If you've ever seen the movie Invitation of Life, you know what I'm talking about. People need to be told they're appreciated. In Luke chapter 17, verse number 11, you hear the, the, the story there about the 10 lepers. 10 men were healed, but only one after being gone through the ritual of making a sacrifice and being healed sought out Jesus to say, Jesus, thank you. I hope you're not the nine, I hope you're the one that would take the time to say to other family members, to your siblings, to your grandparents, to people who have helped you how much you love. You see, that's what makes a place a home is where people take the time to express appreciation. Number three, there is a willingness to develop a trusting relationship. What makes a house a home is where family members They trust one another. Where family members, they care genuinely for one another. But that takes time. Between a husband and wife, between parents and children, it takes time to build a trusting relationship. Turn to Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, we have a story there about a father and a son. A father named Abraham and a son named Isaac. 
And every year, these bo- this father and his, and his son would go through a ritual of developing a relationship with one another. They would go to this mountain to make a sacrifice. On this occasion, Abraham and Isaac are going up the mountain. And, and, and as they're going up the mountain, Isaac looks at dad and says something. That shows that there's a trust in relation. What makes a house a home is when parents trust their children and children trust the parents and spouses trust one another. And there's peace. There's no jealousy. There's no friction because there's a trusting relationship. And as they're going up the mountain, Isaac says to daddy, paraphrasing it, dad, every year, we go up to this mountain to make this sacrifice. Every year we carry with us certain things, a knife, a lamb, rope. And said, Father, where's the lamb? And Abraham said to Isaac, the Lord will provide. And so they get to the top of the mountain. And what you see here is a trusting relationship where there's no lamb. But next thing you read about, Isaac is bound on the sacrifice. On the altar, rather. And he doesn't rebel against his dad. He doesn't attack his dad. There's no fight. Isaac trusted Abraham. He allowed himself to be wrapped up and placed on an altar because he knew his daddy wouldn't do anything to hurt him. He trusted his daddy. Children, do you trust your parents? Parents, do you trust your children? Husband, do you trust your wife? Wife, do you trust your husband? You see, what makes a house a home is where there's a trusting relationship. Abraham and Isaac had a wonderful relationship because they trusted one another. And Isaac knew what was going to happen to the lamb that was wrapped in place in the altar. He'd seen his dad time after time slit his throat. But he trusted his daddy not to hurt him. And when he drew back his hand, God saw the faith. Abraham had in him and said, do thou son, no harm. But the point is, Isaac trusted his dad. Number four, there's a willingness to accept one another, to love yourself, to love yourself. What makes a house a home is where family members are taught to love yourself. You see, there's too many people that don't love self because of a variety of reasons. You're too short, too tall, too round, too thin, too this, too that. And for that reason, people don't like self. They don't. And that, when you don't like self, you can't enjoy other family members. Why is it in Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, Romans chapter 13, verse 9, Galatians 5, verse 14, James 2, verse 8. Over and over again, the Bible says the second greatest commandment in the world is to love thy neighbor as you love yourself. But suppose you don't like yourself. But suppose for whatever reason you don't like yourself, you can't like truly like other people. You can't truly love God until you like yourself. And when you like yourself, you can die to yourself. You see, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. You see, I grew up with a victim of low self-esteem. I didn't like myself. For a variety of reasons, I didn't like myself growing up. And because I didn't like myself, it hindered me in letting people get close to me. And I built a wall around myself and I wouldn't let anybody get close to me because you would find out my weaknesses. You would find out my my frailties and, and you wouldn't like me. So I didn't let anyone get close to me. Two reasons why I didn't like myself. 
Growing up, my sister told me that I was adopted. There's nothing wrong with being adopted. Nothing wrong with being adopted. But my sister told me that that my parents were not my real parents. And she told me that the reason that I need to learn how to clean the house up and do all the housework, because if I didn't keep the house clean, her parents were going to give me away just like my real parents. Now, she was older and I was younger. And she convinced me that I was adopted. And so I had this need to make these people happy. Because if my real parents didn't want me, if I don't live to make these people happy, they won't want me. Then there was another problem I had. I had a severe speech problem. I stuttered a lot. I couldn't say words and I just, and people made fun of me. Because I couldn't say words and I stuttered, I couldn't get the words out and people made fun of me. My parents didn't want me. My real parents gave me away. I had this speech problem. People make fun of me. God, why did you make me this way? God, why? And so I went into a shell and I wouldn't let people get to me, get close to me because you might not like me. There are individuals in your family that are suffering with low self-esteem. Help them overcome that. You may have a family member that is suffering with this. Help them to overcome that so they can like self. And so because if you don't like self, you're not going to be happy in that family because people who have struggled with low self-esteem don't like themselves and therefore they can't like truly like other people. I didn't become a good husband. A better husband be a better phrase until I started liking Sammy. Until I started liking Sammy. You see, I was never happy until I would run until I started liking Sammy. And that's what makes a house a home is when you learn to die to self where family members are dead to self. And it's all about the whole. It's all about the family. You see, in the marriage, it was all about me. It's all about what I wasn't getting, what I wanted, what I wanted, what I wanted. And when I started liking self and died to self, I could focus on Rhonda and I can focus on the boys. Learn to like yourself so that you can have a family. It's not all about you. It's about the family. And finally, number five, turn to Luke chapter 15. In order to transform a house into a home, In a family where members are understanding with one another. They're kind to one another. In Luke chapter 15, there's a story about a father and a son who had two sons. And one day the the youngest son came to dad and said, Daddy, I'm getting tired of your rules. I'm getting tired of your rules in this house and I I don't want to live by those rules anymore. Give me what is rightfully mine and I don't have time to deal with it. But nonetheless, the daddy gave him a portion of his inheritance And the boy went out and wasted it. The story is not with the boy. You know that the story is with the daddy. And that's the kind of daddies we need in a a home. That's the kind of daddy we need in America today because it'll take that house and make it a home. The daddy in this story is the daddy that I want to be and the daddy that I want to encourage you to be. When that boy left home, we don't see it in the story, but that daddy never stopped praying for that boy. His name is Johnny. It's not in the text, but... But when I read the story, he's Johnny. When Johnny left home, daddy said, God, this daddy began to pray to God, please take care of Johnny. 
Don't let anything happen to Johnny. I love Johnny. Johnny doesn't know why I had rules in my home. He doesn't understand the rules. God, please take care of Johnny. Now years have transpired. And, and the daddy is saying, I wish Johnny would call home. I wish Johnny would come home. I wonder how Johnny's doing. The daddy never stopped caring about Johnny. As usual, he would get out on the front porch, take a copy of some of the old manuscript, and he would read. I don't know how many years transpired between Johnny leaving and Johnny coming home. One day, Daddy is sitting on the front porch, and he's reading. And while he's reading the manuscript of Jeremiah, Isaiah, one of the prophets, he falls asleep. And when he opens up his eyes, he sees a boy coming over the hill. Although it had been years and he hadn't seen that walk, but he knew who that walk belonged to. It was Johnny coming home. And when daddy saw Johnny coming home, I want you to see this. When, when daddy saw Johnny coming home, daddy didn't stand on the front porch and fold his arms. And as Johnny got close, said, Johnny, stop right there. Ten years ago, 20 years ago, when you left here, you gave me a piece of your mind. Just stop right there, Johnny. You demanded what was not even rightfully yours, but I gave you a portion. No, that's not the daddy you see. You don't see a daddy standing there saying, Johnny, stop, don't come any farther. But what you see is a daddy, a daddy that sees Johnny getting closer and he's smiling and he recognizes that that's his boy. And so this daddy, he jumps off the front porch and he starts running towards Johnny. And he's running and he's crying. Tears are coming down, as we would say, the old crocodile tears. They're coming down his face and he's running. And then he opens up his arms as he's running. And Johnny sees that. He's got a bag that doesn't have much over his shoulder. When he sees daddy running towards him with his arms open, Johnny drops that bag and he's running. And tears are coming down his face and he's running towards daddy and he's uttering some words and they're both are uttering And can you see now two adult males running to one another and finally they meet, they embrace and they begin to cry and talk to one another. Oh, daddy, I'm sorry. Daddy, I didn't mean it, daddy. Forgive me, daddy. I said some things to you. I wish I hadn't said, daddy, please forgive me. And all of a sudden you, it's not there. But when I read the text, it's there. Daddy says, shh, it's okay. It's okay, Johnny. Johnny, you see, you once was blind, but now you see. Johnny, you once was blind, Johnny, but now you see. Johnny, I'm so glad you're home. You see what America needs more homes like this because children will make mistakes and they need to be knowing that they can come home. People will make mistakes and people need to know a house you can't come home to. Because a house, they say, you just stop there. You're not welcome here. But a home where people make sacrifices. A home where people express appreciation. A home where people have a trusting relationship. A home where people have died to self. It's a home where people are understanding. Just think, if we had more homes in America and people have problems, they would be able to solve a lot of problems. But today, we have too many houses. I encourage you to do what you can to fortify your family. 
I apologize for the longevity of the lesson. I didn't, even, didn't mean to preach so long. But I wanted to encourage you to leave here determined. I challenge you, daddies. I challenge you, husbands, to leave here today determined more than ever that you're going to do what you can to make your house home. A place where it's love. It doesn't have to be a mountain on a hilltop. I grew up in a little shack. And I tell you what, I wouldn't take one billion dollars for the little house that had the outhouse. Because it wasn't much of a house, but it was a home. God is standing down here. You can't see him. Jesus is standing down here, but you can't see him. The Holy Spirit is down here, but you can't see him. And their arms are open. Somebody needs to come home to God. You've been wandering far too long. But God wants calling you home tonight, this morning. He's calling you home. God wants you to come home. God loves you. Regardless of what people say, I don't care what you've done. God says, come on home, child. God loves you. And if you repent of your sins, God will accept you, though you'll never sin. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you need to obey the gospel. The gospel is God's power to save. Romans 6, 17, God be thanked you once was a servant of sin, but you obeyed from the heart a pattern, a form of doctrine. What did you do? You died to sin. You were buried in the watery grave of baptism and you were resurrected. You were baptized. And when you came up out of that grave, you were a new creature in Christ. Part of the greatest family in the world, God's family. And when you stray away, God is never going to be a God that's going to say, just stop right there. His arms will always be open to the day of judgment. I plead with you. Think about ways you can make your family better. Think about it. If we can help you today, why don't you come as we together stand and sing.